Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico and you can find me at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today we have a number of issues for you. First up, we have X Factor number six, followed by a review of Juggernaut 1 through 5, and then a little talk about some of the mutants that haven't appeared in X titles or on Krakoa lately. We start the episode off with X Factor number six, where I'm joined by Evelyn, Dante, and Jonah. And we get deep into the psychology of Teresa and sort of the way she's a evolved over the years, which leads to Jonah admitting he doesn't know too much about her, which uh, kind of sets Dante off in the best way. Now, we had a bit of a technical disconnect during recording this episode, and that's kind of what happens when you're trying to record these episodes remotely. And in that time, Jonah and Dante just started talking about character and development, and it was also amazing that I just I had to keep it in. We hope you guys enjoy this next segment. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Exes for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you can find me online at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at comic underscore canary. Hi, this is Dante, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Inferno Magic. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience just like Teresa did, but then she didn't. And now she's alive again, but she's refusing to talk about it because it's a dark secret. Or is it? Dun, dun, dun. I imagine this is like a very, like season three, the season three finale of this like soap opera. Okay. Okay. And see, when I hear X Factor 6, I think to myself, it's like the rejuvenating compound in a facial cream. Like, I hear, oh, it's X Factor 6. It's keeping you young. It's keeping you young at quite a cost, though, because as, as Jonah pointed out, it's a bad day for Teresa. It's that ingredient that they include that nobody actually knows what it is or what it really does, but it sounds like it works. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to poke fun at anything, but like I watch a lot of Food Network and there's this commercial that's like, do you know what Parba Blue Badaba Dubadow is? Me neither. So why would you want it in your detergent? This detergent's made of all natural stuff. And I just want to be like, but are you denying the value of science? Like if you went up to people and said deoxyribonucleic acid, somebody would be like, that's in my body. Get it out. And you're like, that's DNA. Right. Now you're just goo. I took out all your DNA and now you're just goo. And now we're going to call you Glob Herman and everyone's going to love you. So we're here today to discuss X Factor number six by the superstar all-star mega team of Leah Williams and David Baldion. And I could not praise this book enough. Now, after issue five left us with some vaguely X Factory feelings after some Ten of Swordsy switch-ups in the middle there, we find ourselves back in the world of X Factor investigations, and they're trying to find out why Teresa can't stop dying. The issue seems to be mixed of Teresa can't stop dying, domestic life, and a desire to build a body farm. And we're going to get into all of that. And I can't wait. But I would be lying if I said that X Factor was anything less than my favorite second wave title. 
I gush about this book every chance I get. Dante, what's your relationship with X Factor? Are you slathering X Factor 6 all over your face to keep yourself young? Or are you concerned that X Factor 6 is a secret government program designed to steal all of your brainwaves through your microwave? X Factor 6 is that rejuvenating cream that keeps me going day to day. I'm feeling reinvigorated. I am excited for more. I'm probably addicted. I just, I love it. Evelyn, my question for you. I know we've covered X Factor together a number of times, so I know that you're not suddenly interested in this book, but rather this book has been hitting a lot of your needs as an X fan. And it's taken, I don't want to say a slightly different turn, but I feel like no two issues of X Factor read the same. How did this issue feel for you? I mean, this issue, I was living. I really was. Like, it was all the subtle moments, and I, I gotta praise the artist for it. The subtle moments is what got me. Just docking, but it's like the little things where he pulls the pen out of her hair, and then when we have uh, Polaris just being like all moody because her friend's not talking to her. Just the whole thing was brilliant. I agree completely. This issue, especially all those docking asides, had me like it. It was. I mean. I can't even tell you. It was like Babs because it was so evergreen. I was just out of my mind with happy over this. And Jonah, X Factor was a book that I hyped to you before it came out. And we've been reading it together nearly every step of the way. And I've been wondering how you feel about the transformation of these characters. We began with sort of these blank slates as far as you were concerned, but we're six issues in and we have a pretty strong sense of who these characters are, even if they're rarely the main characters of this book. And we'll get to that more in a moment but where do you stand half a year into x factor i stand by them i stand with them i stand for them i am standing and i'm standing on my copy of x factor right now because it's so amazing that it just lifts me up and i have to you know be on it okay i really like that you brought that home because i was like that sounds like you hate it and you're like stomping on it why would you stay oh i get it because it's like red bull and it gives you wings i understand now but hopefully not Teresa's flight powers because right now they're not working no right now she's a mess. Now, I can't wait to talk about X Factor 6, but I wanted to talk about X Factor 6 in kind of an interesting way. For me, this issue broke down into five categories. It broke down into components that deal with uh, pretty directly domestic life, Teresa Cassidy O'Rourke herself, North Star, building a body farm, and... I would be crazy if I didn't spend a little time discussing the art. Now, where would you guys like to start discussing this book? I vote Teresa. So let's talk Teresa for a moment. For those of you who aren't familiar with Siren, Siren is one of the X-Men's oldest secondary generation characters. She was frequently overlooked, but as often happens with a number of the Claremont mainstay superwomen, she found her time in the spotlight thanks to X-Force in the 90s. She was initially introduced in the pages of Spider-Woman 37 and 38 in a two-part story. She later then crossed over to the pages of Uncanny X-Men for Uncanny X-Men 148, 149, somewhere in that Carol joins the team sort of era. Now, she would go on to be a member of the Fallen Angels, the original Fallen Angels. That's Fallen Angels 1 through 8 by Joe Duffy. So that's definitely from the 80s and definitely a thing that happened and definitely a thing I would not spend too much effort trying to get yourselves a copy of. She then would go on to appear in the Mirror Island X-Men, my precious interim X-Men, who all look super fantastic in those blue and yellow suits. Like, and if you want to see life, you need to see Demanda Martini cosplay Moira in the blue and yellow bodysuit. 
it is the definition. So she would then go on to have a pretty cool tenure with X Corporation in the pages of New X-Men by Grant Morrison, one of my all-time favorite runs. She appeared in the Multiple Man arc. Of course, she has an extensive history with Multiple Man and would go on to co-star with him in X-Factor Investigations for an extensive period of time. Now, this is one of my favorite things about this book. This is X-Factor, and it's got a cast of like 36, but this issue is completely about Teresa. Now, we mentioned a little bit about her backstory, but her powers list is even more insane than her backstory. The daughter of Banshee, who was helped raised by her uncle Black Tom, her powers include Sonic Scream, which is like, you know, destructive kind of stuff flight sound manipulation hypnosis teleportation because she also became part of a siren like the actual like i'm a gaelic fairy and i'm a siren gaga kind of siren i danced while i said that she's got some amount of immortality going on about her because she is the morrigan so i'm not sure where that falls in everything with house of x and her being resurrected but i just told you guys a lot about Teresa. now you might have known some of it you might not have known some but here's my question. How high profile did they treat her in this issue? She was the cover girl of a book that's already exploding with X-Men. Like This was a backdoor pilot for Teresa's going to do some bad shit to your friends. Other than the fact that I think Dokken is on the tail and is going to bail everybody out, this ending left me shaken. Guys, talk to me about the threat that is Teresa, evidently the unstoppable X-Woman. We're just in awe, shock and awe, or at least for me. Like, I totally forgot about some of her powers, and seeing that at the end was just like, holy shit shit there is something crazy going on so either she just gets kicks out of falling to her death which i doubt is a thing or at least for her i don't know what else people are into but it just oh my gosh like there's definitely something going on and you reminding me of like the whole faith thing like it's got to be something with that i mean possibly coming back to avalon even though excalibur's kind of got their feet in there and they've kind of have their thing going on with Avalon and everything but I, I honestly have no idea what's gonna happen I am at a total loss and I love that I actually love not knowing and being on the edge of my seat like oh my god what's gonna happen next is it next month already I would absolutely back up the fact that Leah Williams is incredibly close friends with Teeny Howard and the two of them love interplay so to hear that there would be some sort of interplay between the two titles would far from shock something that I love about Siren is that she has Banshee's power set but she's able to use her abilities in ways that are creative and it's something similar we saw with at least i not we i saw with dazzler and that dazzler's mutant power is she can turn sound into light but she can do so many different things by doing that it's not just light blasts or shining bright lights there's a really a lot to do with that so seeing writers be creative with power sets and trying to give interesting abilities to characters without changing their mutation or without changing who they are is really great what also excites me about teresa being this villain anti-hero antagonist is that she kind of has a blank slate in that she's a character that's i would say probably not the most popular she's definitely not an a or b probably not even a c list x-men character and it's a character like her who i think is perfect for these stories she's almost like she's never been seen before you get to add these new stories and it's really refreshing in my eyes to see characters who don't have many stories get these stories and get a chance to do something different than you would expect with them so you're saying that because she's 
to you, like culturally a blank slate, you kind of like, it's easier to step into this character since you know nothing about her. Correct. Now, Dante, what do you think about the sort of complex narrative that has become Siren? I love Teresa, and she has a huge fan base. She's been around for a long time. She's a complicated character. She has a messy life. And she's so real. What I really love that we're seeing in X-Factor and what Leah Williams is doing, and I think this, this is something that we're going to see more with this book, is that, yeah, it's a team book. We have we have established who the team players are, but it's a team that investigates mutant deaths. So we're going to get more of a focus on other characters in the Marvel Universe, on Krakoa, or the people who are missing from Krakoa. You know, seeing such a, a focus on Teresa, I think, is such a great setup for where the direction of this book is going to go. We're really going to get to see all these appearances of of characters that we've been missing for such a long time. Teresa is definitely one of them. You know, I know she's had little cameos here and there, you know, like she's on stage performing with Dazzler. But I think we all have been wondering what's been going on with her because the last time we saw her, yeah, she basically like sacrificed her life to save her friends, Polaris in particular, and became the Morrigan. And it's like, okay, well, what happened with that? Why, why is she here all of a sudden? Why is she just walking around like nothing ever happened? So I'm so excited that we're touching on that. And and I love that, uh, you know, we have we have writers and creators who aren't forgetting the past and they are bringing back up those questions that, that a lot of the fans have, too. And just to echo that for a second, I think what's really special about this case in particular is it's less of the how someone has died, but this is more of a why case. And I think that adds this really interesting element to it, because while this entire book is meant to just be focusing on solving mutant deaths, there's a lot of um, ways you can go about it. And seeing the writers take a break from the traditional, we got dead body slash we got evidence that someone's dead. We just need to proof and find out how that happened. Now we can go into a different story where you're focusing on, well, we know Teresa keeps dying. We keep seeing her body. Why is this happening? So I think that's a really great addition to this. Uh, the, the one flip side I see with this though and the way that x-factor is treating like kind of their investigation with Teresa, is that they are asking those questions about why is this happening where we started the series with not really knowing the circumstances of aurora's death and there's a lot of questions i think still there but they didn't press it in the same way i kind of like that juxtaposition because i think like we're seeing kind of a setup for aurora that's going to be probably coming back later whereas like now we're, we're in the the thick of the the team being the team and like not being able to let go of something right they've they've kind of built this momentum and now that's like well no why does this keep happening like we we need answers so occasionally during recording this show remotely we run into technological snafus right and in the process of recording this episode we had a bit of a connection difficulty and some of the material that came out was just so terrific for the next couple of minutes it might not seem like we're discussing x-factor but i do promise you it does come back to what we're supposed to be talking about and all of our contributors and panelists return to the discussion so we hope you guys enjoy this brief segue into a little bit behind the scenes how our panelists interact and come to know one another i have to ask who is your favorite x-men slash x character you can name multiple cyclops is like my number one default i don't know 
sometimes it's hard to explain, but like he's been my favorite for as long as I can remember. And I think he's almost my favorite out of habit more than anything. I could defend and exclaim my love for Emma Frost like to no end. So between the two of them, they they take the top spots. I probably round it out with with some rogue love. Rogue, when she's written really well, just killer, amazing character. And then when people try to regress her, I'm just like, why? You just ruined all that great development. But um, yeah, I mean, I but I tend to have this feeling that I've probably loved every character at some point. And it just depends on how they were written or how they how they were drawn. It might just be like a story arc. But I mean, I really have a lot of love for so many of these mutants. And that's amazing. Like, I, I can respect that. I really do get that. Especially talking about Scott. Before Nico, you know, uh, inducted me into the X-Men religion. I like didn't know a lot about the X-Men. A lot of my knowledge came from certain stories that like I've heard about or video games, mostly just through video games. I will never forget I went to go visit family in Canada and we we're watching it was in I believe went to Quebec. So the screen was one of the X-Men was uh the X-Men cartoon, but it was in French. I remember I watched it. I had no idea what was going on. But growing up, I always loved Cyclops because um, I think a lot of what you first see with a character is their design. I just thought he looked so cool. He was always drawn in these like very dynamic like dominant poses where i'm like yeah that's a cool guy i want to be just like him and then i read him and i'm like scott can be so interesting and i just feel scott we call colossus a resident sad boy at least scott gets happy endings and has shown like happiness because otherwise he'd almost be right up there no i agree um well i think i think i probably like love scott or at least i started to because i had a crush on him like so he's really probably my first ex oh absolutely crush. um yeah because it's it's all about that design and i i love the way that he looked i, f- I feel like at some point i could do like a, a deep dive into this but i feel like with with cyclops i see this overarching story of his journey through many decades and you know we've we've had some we had definitely always kind of a rocky start right like he's kind of a tragedy and there's like little little blips of you know oh like he you know someone loves him right he's in a relationship with gene there's other things you know he's built up uh as a leader um really you know coming forward into that he had the opportunity to you know go away and have a family and then you know things get shitty for a while and then we have like that revolutionary era and where everybody kind of turned on him and so like i think like there's a big arc to his story and so i am so happy that we're in an era right now where he is just getting to be a happy dad <laughs> you know like it's so it's so cathartic like it to to see him get to be in a role that i feel like he's always wanted and like it's it's finally there for him and I really get that. It's like a really big payoff to this character that's been around for decades at this point. And he's gone, he has gone through a lot. I don't even know. I can't, I'm sure you can tell me much more of the extent of everything, but I do like know like bits and pieces. And I understand like, yeah, this character, they put him through like everything. I, I think the only character who's gone through more shit than, than Scott is probably Wolverine. I, it, there's so much. And it's like, huh. Um, I have haven't gotten to when he and Madeline have the baby so like I'm almost there and I'm like that's probably when Scott's gonna want to start being a dad and I think every point after that can be almost interpreted as him doing what he thinks would that a good father would do but also how do I get to be my how do I get to be a parent how do I solve everything so I can just be a parent I don't want to yeah well then of course we, we get into the question or like some of his questionable decisions in life I mean he basically abandons his family because Gene is back 
And like, I can kind of, I guess, I mean, I don't want to defend. I never want to defend. I can say that I understand maybe why someone might be torn and need to go see the person that they consider their love of their life, but I can't condone that kind of behavior. And like, yes, he like tried to follow up with Maddie, but at the same time, he didn't really try that hard. I mean, it's just like... And th- this is this is that point where it's like, well, I want to blame writers for a lot of it, but you also kind of have to accept that this is part of their history now. And so even even though like I'm so mad at the writers making these decisions, okay, like how do we reconcile this? And and the thing that I always have to remember, um, somebody somebody said this once. It was in context of Spider Man. Oh, Spider Man would never kill anybody, you know, like that's so out of character. But how would he respond to doing something that was out of character? And his response response would be something that would be very in character for Spider-Man. And so I always take that to remember that even us as individuals, right, you know, we're real people. And so I have to treat the X characters that way. It's like, even if they do something that we don't think is in their character, it's all about how they respond to that moment. And, you know, having huge amounts of regret, mulling over it, you know, killing yourself over it, like that would be a very in character thing. So even when we see those moments in people, like, I want to see that response. It's like, okay, you did something so stupid stupid you did something shitty we all hate you for it now but like are you going to atone are you going to pretend like it never happened i mean we're we're kind of at a point right now where they kind of pretend like it never happened which is also shitty and the way madeline's treated and that's a whole nother two hours of recording that we're not going to do today but absolutely so even even when somebody is not written the way i think they should be written like okay well what are we doing with it now what like show me that the character is responding to that thing that was so out of character yeah absolutely and there's a thing to say that i think that that when they do that it really you're really relying on the writer to do it well because it can lead to you know character growth and evolution it can lead to a new direction i think sometimes we also forget that there are higher ups who are reading this and have to approve things and they're maybe be like we, mm-hmm. we see this character going in this direction how to make that happen and sometimes you're just like well i have to make it happen somehow and i also think sometimes that people forget is like well we've had friends or family members or other people in our lives who have done things that you think are out of character and you're like huh well that was weird and then you get to see how they react to that and why it happened too and that always leads for something hopefully interesting and good doesn't always mean that but you know i think that even though we're reading works of fiction the it's written by real people so there's gonna be real people moments in them yeah and the other thing i think people forget about is uh you know like circumstances make up a big part of how someone reacts or you know their their actions right and so you know i think well (laughs) to tie it back into what we're actually talking to today i think that really that really kind of like makes that scene in x factor with Teresa like all the more real it's like well what's going on with you like you've died twice like what is happening and you know like she's being defensive it's like there's so many signs and and you know polaris is not seeing it right she's just thinking my friend is lying to me she's she's being complete she is thinking that Teresa's out of character but not questioning it and like that, that, I mean, it's like, oh my god, that's like the biggest point here, Polaris. Open your fucking eyes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and that maybe just speaks to like whatever is going on. Sometimes when it is like your really good friend, you're like, well, I, no, there's some, there's a really good reason. They're not bad. Why are you doing this? And they're like, no, I'm not doing anything. Stop. Leave me alone. Not that they all talk like they're very drunk girls at a bar, <laughs> because that would just be a they little too um, reductive. Uh, you know what? For all we know, per- dinosaurs were purple nobody was there 
for all we know, it's so exactly true. what they talk about. None of us are in the comic. None of us are in that in the X Men writing room. So I mean, um, they do spend a lot of time at the Tiki Bar. So and I, who knows? Blob may pour really strong drinks. So they might be drunk twenty four seven. We don't know what's in the water. <laughs> I love that you love Emma Frost. I I, I feel like. I don't care how cliche it is. I don't care how basic it is. Emma is one of the best characters. And I I love seeing her succeed, but I also love seeing her not succeed. I love when she doesn't get her way because it's so funny. <laughs> uh, it's, that's, that's and I listen, I, I am a basic gay in many ways. And she was introduced as this beautiful, sexy woman in tight fitting clothing. And I was like, yes. And it's not that I wanted to be with her. I wanted to be her. And I still want to be Emma. If I was a mutant on Krakoa, I would literally, I would do whatever it took to be one of Emma's uh, fucking white pawns, white knights. What are they called? I would. <laughs> As a queer woman, hi, yeah. I have no idea what happened, but I'm back. And I heard Emma Frost, and um, yeah, uh, she could spit on me, and I would thank her. And like, I want to both be her and be with her. I just realized something. There's straight women, there's queer women, and then there's clear women. Emma Frost is clear. <laughs> Now, I think the biggest part of this issue for me was Teresa at the end being um, like full Dark Willow, but like times seven. I was super into this. And I love whenever a bad guy is like, and you'll never remember you said this. Like, I always love that. It cracks me up because like, it's just such a great little twist. Like, it's it's just it's a nice touch, right? And I loved the drama and fear of this scene. Polaris is like, I'm a big gun. And Teresa's like, okay, uh, I'm not into guns. And like it was just great. How did you guys feel about crazy Teresa? She reminded me of Medusa with that red hair of flowing and grabbing yes. Polaris. <laughs> oh, um I mean, sorry, it, I just I was expecting Sorry. a little bit bigger response and I was just like waiting for it. It was like, there's going to be something oh. huge. <laughs> no, was, I mean, that, that was, was, one that was perfect. <laughs> um, I loved it. I love that Leah Williams remembered what has been happening to Risa from the last time we really saw her. And, you know, Polaris is a big gun. Well, the Morgan is a bigger gun and she's going to point and shoot you. Uh, like oh it was, it was yeah chills I was super into it I was like yes I've been waiting for this I com- yeah I'm completely with you she really is so fucking threatening now Evelyn I know you're a big fan of strong women being used dynamically how did you feel about seeing these two powerhouse women neither one of these women had to be degraded for the other to be elevated how did this fight play out for you well I mean first of all Becknell test yes um, I'm always happy when something passes the Becknell test and like I'm a huge huge Polaris fan and I've never been like that exposed to Teresa but this had me gagging I I just just everything about it was fantastic where Polaris is like I'm a big gun and Sirens just like hold my beer like it's (laughs) it was fan freaking tastic to see just two powerful women going at it and then having a clear winner because a lot of times it's like vague it's like oh you're both strong women no siren teresa she was clearly the stronger woman and she is for sure up to something and she does not give a flying fuck that her friend is going to get hurt in the process and i kind of like that because she's portrayed as a villain but not a bitch and 
that's something that I feel like writers can't do very well. And I thought this was fantastic. Like, I love her as a villain, and she's not a bitch. She's just a great villain. I think uh, to echo what you're saying a little bit about that, I know going into this and reading it before I got to the ending, I was like, someone's blackmailing her, someone's controlling her. And then while we still don't know that's the case, to see her turn around and do this to her one of her closest friends who was like, oh, oh shit. No, maybe she's maybe something else in this was going on. And I think it was a really great way to draw people in to be excited for the next issue because it was so, at least in my eyes, a subversion of expectations. I think this book had an excellent use of data page. Page one is a quote by Teresa with a sub sub note and it's blacked out. And that tells us Teresa may be saying it, but it's not really Teresa. And I think that was a, that was a brilliant play. And I don't know if anybody else really picked up on that early on. Uh, but I mean, I feel like it's very clear when, once we get to the end of the book. It's like, this isn't actually Teresa. We're dealing with something else. Okay, so I love that you said that because I read it differently. I read it as like, oh, she has like a new title or she has a new role on Krakoa, but we aren't privy to that yet. That's how I read it. But I like your thing better, especially like with the 2020 vision of the end. So Now, Teresa was not the only major star of this issue. We still have several other categories categories to go. We have Domestic Life, North Star, Building a Body Farm, and The Art of X Factor. Who'd like to pick a category? Uh, can can I talk about The Body Farm? Please I go say ahead. Very, I don't want to sound weird, but I'm like really into this from a scientific standpoint. Like, I love Prodigy because I myself in my day job am a scientist. And as a biologist, like obsessed with evolutionary biology, I want to study this too. Like, yeah, that's a great point point he made we need to know the decomposition rates like that's all a part of like forensic science and everything but that's also so important to know that can help with mutant biology that can help with mutant medicine that can help with so much things and i know i'm nerding out right now but this is like that's my shit that i am into like oh my gosh it's disgusting and gross and cool and just the science behind it is brilliant it yeah yeah now, without question i mean that's really one of the three prongs discussions about the body farm there's number one the excellent and beautiful potential for science like evelyn just so beautifully nerdgasmed over number two we have the ethical questions you know the sort of like but that was a person that people love to debate i mean it's science it's different it's not a person it's science right and then number three of course we have the dangers of harvesting all of the x-men's best parts and keeping them in a drawer near a guy like sinister so i feel like the body farms have a lot of beautiful potential, but they've also got some some scary dangerous to them. I mean, again, I'm just going to say, best parts of the X-Men's bodies kept in a little box near Sinister. There are a couple of X-Men whose body parts I would love to keep. And But saying that, I really thought it was very fascinating as also a scientific mind to be like, yeah, yeah, this is all really interesting. I will say a little morbid and a little bit weird, and I would have maybe put it somewhere else. You can definitely have it. I'm with you, Prodigy. I see you. David, I I read you in that one issue when you went to college with Miss America. 
<laughs> well, they were young Avengers together. They used to hang out and be gay at each other. Yeah, and they were still gay at each other in this book. But maybe we could just pick somewhere else. <laughs> Though I did, I did really like everybody trying to get Teresa not to look out the window. Like not only looking out the window, but North Star, like you want to put it in our front lawn. Like I love the whole like daddy joke they made because like it was two pronged. Which again, love that kind of shit. But yeah, I do agree they could have picked a better spot, a not so public spot. Because yeah, I feel like the ethic part of it. And again, I hate that I'm into ethics, but blame the good place. Maybe they should ask people's permission to use their deceased bodies after they're resurrected to be like, hey, this is for science. Maybe that'll be a little bit more respectful because I can see this like blowing up in their faces with that. Absolutely. I very much agree. Can you imagine how jarring it would be? I mean, I think the reason they're trying to keep Teresa away from the window is because her body is right there. And I mean, how traumatic is it to see your own dead body? You know, that that's a huge issue. And I think you're absolutely right, Evelyn. I think the ethical thing would be to ask for permission from the, the actual mutants because... We can do that in this era, right? Normally, you can't ask a cadaver permission, but we're do- we're talking about resurrection. So I think that it still should be up to them to say whether or not they want their, their bodies used in this way. And can I also say, I'm actually super surprised that they had that many bodies on hand right away. I would have thought that a huge part of the resurrection would probably be disposing of the, the old body. Unless a ton of people just died all of a sudden. I'm singing Crematorium to the tune of Food Emporium for those of you who are familiar with the Food Emporium food chain. <laughs> crematorium, crematorium. And you would just think. I literally just went to, let's all go to the crematorium. <laughs> let's all go to the crematorium. Well, before we can have our orange and crematoriums, you guys brought up some stuff that I really liked about the complexities of North Star as a leader. And so I'm going to actually pick a category here i want to talk about north star now i'm not just saying this because we've recently added a canadian gay twin to our show so that's not why i'm suddenly being lighter on north star than i've been this issue was highly transformative number one i actually thought he was a great leader this issue like i was legit impressed and i did love the subtle domesticity of his life with kyle even if i kind of thought that that scene was like that just felt like we're showing off krakoa being weird and i get it show it off man show off your weird self but like it wasn't my thing, but like the hottest thing I have ever seen in my life is North Star being like, Dokken, do this thing for me. I trust you. You're obviously trying to bang my sister, but I am aware enough in my independence and agency as an adult man to recognize her independence and agency as an adult what man. And I'm going to be like, she can do herself. I'm not going to let that color my judgment. I still think that you're a useful tracker. And if I can, the fact that someone who was on Alpha Flight with Wolverine would use Wolverine's son as a tracker is the most beautiful, well-thought utilization of a character ever. As was called out in the green room earlier today, I was hanging out with the Zen Coast room and they were talking about characters and books they love. And I got called out for being a Wolverine stan. And I was like, uh, is that my identity? I'm fine with it. But is that my identity? Wolverine stan? That's my identifier. Right? Like, I thought I would at least get loud gay gene fan. But 
Instead, I have Wolverine stand and I'm fine with it. But like that somebody thought to use Dokken in that way and it was an Alpha Flight team member. Like I just uh everybody had the North Star feels, right? Or am I weirdly alone on this? You are not alone. I mean I mean you're not alone, but I just got like just all the dad vibes. And I feel like this team needs the dad vibes. <laughs> now, Dante, I need you to either follow up that statement with the rest of that thought, or I need you to break out into Michael Jackson. You are not alone. Um, you're not. You're not alone. Uh, North Star. You know he he's a character that I've I've known about. I've read him over the years, but I never really felt like I got to know him. And I feel like he's really coming into his own as a leader. And I part of that really is him giving us the dad vibes. And I think one of the subtle things that I love that uh, that David Baldion does with Northstar is that when he's trying to be authoritative, he flies to make himself taller. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. And I love that consistency. It's it's great. I mean, person who wishes they could buy, I want that. I mean, the it's maybe a little problematic that he always brings himself up to about um, eye level with his crotch for people. But other than that, like super into it. Well, I mean, it's actually not a problem for me. I would be fine with that. I too would be fine with that. I, I'd be hard. I guess we'd be hard pressed to find someone. Well, no, I, there are plenty oh. of people out there. And because here's the thing, I'd either be attracted <laughs> to him and be like, I'm fine with this at the moment. Or I would be like annoyed, ball tap. And like that teach him. <laughs> yeah. Some, something about him is really, I, I think it's because he's really uh, settling into the authoritative role and that really looks good on him. And it is super attractive on him. And I think his husband is feeling that too, right? Like they're, I feel like their relationship is is better than I've ever seen it. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, North Star stepping up and, and being a leader for this team of people and being a dad. In a, ca- in a cast full of... Ca- oh, well, yes, very much daddy. In a cast of characters who are very colorful, not even in just their costumes and their personalities, but just on the broad spectrum he adds a much needed serious balance because he's a very serious character in my opinion and to have someone to be like no these are the rules you have to get it through by me first this is how things are done but i want a body farm and he's like i mean okay you can have it if you really want it but you got to take care of it and take it for walks three times a day you know like that's what that's what it felt like in that daddy vibe he's a very serious character and i think that adds this nice balance to characters like iboy who's getting so excited of the way that david reads or rachel who's you know chronos giving everything and popping out one-liners or polaris who's you know bragging about the time that she almost split the earth in half now that's a beautiful transition actually to the domestic life tab of my notes because something that we saw this issue that we had not seen in some time north star was not defined by his relationship with aurora this issue which was a significant point of characterization and growth for him that i especially loved loved now i've enjoyed every page of this book like i i'm trying not to play favorites but like x factor you really have my heart i don't just it, every page of it really works for me from the art to the characters it's there and i loved seeing north star be his own person because as much as we see women frequently reduced to nothing more than their male counterpart
counterparts, we often see gay men boiled down to their non-queer other person. You know what I mean? Like the queer guy is only ever about his straight sister so that that doesn't have to be a thing. And like, it was just really great getting to see North Star thrive here. Also, I know there was a moment that you loved as much as me, Evelyn, that where was the pen moment? The domestic oh life of this issue was brilliant. Guys, I could just hang out. This was the real world, but like one of the good seasons. So New Orleans or Boston, or it was like a good season of Top Chef or like a good real runway. It really is the real season of Koa. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how did you guys feel about this? Like, come and knock on our door. There's some mutants waiting for you. Kind of behind the body farm attitude of this issue. This very, we're all here and everybody's about to get gene spliced. Like, I'm a horny for domestic life, if that makes any sort of sense. Like, put that on a t shirt. I just, <laughs> yes, if you get me that t shirt, I will obviously wear it. I'm basically horny for domestic life, where I just love these type of like fun little dynamics where people are getting along and they're happy and X-Men deserve to be happy after all the shit they've been through, especially these characters. So I just, uh, I love it. I need more of it. I can't wait for it. As, as much as I love the whole detection thing and them just being like on it when it comes to their stuff, like the little jobs, like, do we get badges? Like, oh my God, if they get badges, like, uh, yes. I need one. I need to be able to send away for one instantly. Like I need David Baldione to open an Etsy and I need Marvel to look the other way. Yeah, absolutely. Or can Mar Marvel can just do it. I will buy that. Like make it $50. I will buy it. It just takes forever to go through merchandising and approval. So like just Etsy that shit. Now, Dante, what about you? Are you going to open an Etsy store and, and sell Aurora domestic life placards? I'm too lazy to do that myself, but if someone else is able to do it, I am happy to support them and give them all of my dollars. This little slice of life moment really got me thinking. I kept coming back to it because there are so many great little interpersonal moments that we see. And what I started thinking about was what a hodgepodge this team was, right? Like that first issue, it's like, it's almost like grab who whoever's available and go and we're a team. And I feel like we've been seeing that in a, in a number of X books. And what that really got me thinking about was that, you know, the, the sense of community that they have as a team is something that, you know, a lot of mutants strive for. In my life, I've always looked for a community of people, you know, that I can be along, belong to, feel part of. And Krokoa was that, right? Like, come join Krokoa. Krokoa is the pride parade. But then X Factor, X Factor is like that niche group of friends that you make when you've, you put yourself out there. And you you go to your first you know pride party or parade or anything like that, and and now all of these characters that didn't make any sense together initially, um, you know, seem like they weren't connected, are now living together like a family and and reacting to each other like like close friends and and family members, and I just think that's so beautiful, and I I love that I love that we're seeing that, and I love that for me that's what this little moment really brought into perspective is like this is what everybody wants, and they were able to find it and come together. And I just think it's a beautiful thing to see. Can someone please just draw Krakoa Pride Parade? Like, I feel like <laughs> I need that. Like, immediately. Like, someone draw that. Well, I mean, fans, get on it. And I feel like there's something really beautiful in what you're saying, Dante, because I'm kind of personally like, wow, when you put it that way, I can't stop seeing the contrasts between this and Claremont's early giant size era, 
where this is not a team that want to be together or necessarily knew each other closely before this, but they're a team that exists now and that's what it is. And I feel like a lot of books kind of work to simulate that and it winds up very forced. But here it is, a pretty organic, seamless experience. It transitions from a group of people who know each other, maybe a little bit kind of strangers though, to a family in a really natural way. You can imagine how this team like communicate grocery lists well. That's like a silly thing to point out, but like I imagine that like, oh, we're out of milk and like somebody puts it on the list. You know what I mean? Like it's not a battle every day for these people. And that's something that I really appreciate about the domestic bliss of this book. I think they're cycling a pretty heavy roster pretty well. How do you guys feel about how big this cast is? I mean, I feel like it works. It it definitely is a big cast and they keep adding people, but so far it works. It doesn't feel like this is the villain of the week type of situation. It's the monster of the week for D&D. It's very organic. It's very natural. It flows together well and I just can't get enough of it. Like I love seeing all of these characters that I love that many people might not be very aware of come into the front forelight and I just want people to know about these people because there's so many other amazing X-Men and mutants that people might not know about. So this is a great way to introduce them. Now Dante, I know you love a lot of the you love a lot of the 80s you know super power ballad kind of characters like rachel and Teresa and lorna wow they're all here so do you feel like your torch song ladies are getting their fair due each in this title or do you feel like you could you know stand to lose a few eye boys um don't take away my eye boy he is precious same like he's he's he brings every every character I feel like brings something different to the book and I appreciate that. And when you do have a larger ensemble, you maybe don't get quite as much attention to everybody as you would like, but there are still opportunities for people to have, you know, their moments. And iBoy is is definitely having some moments. And I, he may not be the breakout for everybody, but for me, he just is so damn endearing. And his positivity is so infectious. And I love it. And I live for it. And I, I love that he's here. I love that they they put together a mix of characters. And I think a lot of people, you know, they, they love Lorna. They love, uh, some people love Northstar. Uh, <laughs> people love Siren. But maybe they don't really know characters like iBoy or Akiro or even Prodigy you know so i the mix to me is so so brilliant because you get to learn new people while experiencing the characters that we already love yeah i i honestly i feel like the ensemble makes a lot of sense and i wouldn't i wouldn't want to take anyone out of that jonah has anybody been the standout in this book for you i mean you had a a bare like a bare relationship with any of these characters if you had any relationship with them at all but you know we're 140 pages into this thing how are you feeling about x factors character roster who is your you know who gives you that factor x okay i have two choices for this my first one personally is Dawkin because i'm a greaseball and you know i love i love seeing this slimy man hit on everybody and be um, you know playfully protective and aggressive like his father but in a way where i'm like you're really not that threatening i'm really not that scared of Dawkin. <laughs> i should be but i'm not so he's a character to me that's standing out, whether it's the comedic moments he's doing or the, you know, the little more gentle, tender sides we see with him and Aurora. I think it's really 
fascinating. It's been really a pleasure to read this uh, biological Wolverine son basically kind of act like his father and everyone being like, you're almost a puppy. You'll get there soon. Uh, And my other answer actually is Aurora. She's a character that, while I haven't read everything, the large portion that I have read has not been kind to her. And she's a character that I look at like, okay, somebody needs to be writing her right and do this character justice because she does not deserve the treatment that she's gotten for many years. And I've been trying to keep a very close eye on how they're treating her because she's a character that I, I think can very easily slip back into something that's not the best. So having her be what I feel is a much better character than she's been written from what I've read. I really appreciate and enjoyed that. Now, I would be remiss if I did not continue a trend that we've had on this show since the first episode where we covered X Factor the first time, which, by the way, on the first episode of X Factor, there is actually a clip of Josh shouting at me, of course, you're the guy that likes iBoy. It's for real. But so... We have taken some extreme amount of time to praise the art on each issue, even when it was a fill-in for Mr. Baldion the Great. So I've picked three pages that I think really sum up my feelings about why this book is the mega queer fashion capital of the world book. Now, if you're reading on the digital like myself, page 17 has the healing gardens and as there's so many naked bodies and they manage not to look sexual, but rather they look very of the fae. They look very fairy and it's gentle and it's kind. I also think the stylization on digital page 19 with the color blocking, that is some fucking Steranko levels of design work. So fucking good. And obviously that last splash page is like literally the beginning and the end. It is the crossover and we should all buy all 23 issues of it. How did you guys feel about the art? Were there any standouts for you guys the way I had those three? Or is it just, you know, a mind fuck from beginning to end? I mean, it was just plain gorgeous. Like, I feel like the artist just captured the emotions that all of these characters had, even the subtleties like embarrassment or smugness or confidence. It just all was so well drawn and so I don't have the words for how good it was. I, I mean, I've been a big fan of uh, David Bellion's art since day one. Like I, I'm just, it's a treat for the eyes. Um, so what I actually really want to uh, bring a moment to bring more focus to is the colors by Israel Silva. Because... Beginning to end colors, 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 fuck me with the colors. So good. And they're brilliant. But on top of that, each palette really, depending on the setting, really fits the tone. And I think pro- maybe maybe the biggest thing for me is that we we, we see that opening that breakfast morning where they're all hanging out and we've got this gorgeous like pinkish purple Krakoan sky in the background right and then when we when we jump to the end of the book and we finish and we're still on Krakoa but we've got this menacing dark foreboding look it's still in still Krakoa so like that beautiful landscape that we have but there's something ominous happening and I love that the colors really help you know give that feeling I, I think I think they're just fantastic. And that point about the colors actually reminds me to bring up something I wish I'd brought up a thousand times. I have said a trillion times that one of my all-time favorite characters is Dr. Cecilia Reyes, and her all-too-brief appearance in this issue is stunning and spectacular and actually shows an understanding of her character and the wealth of humanity and the dearth of patience for bullshit she has. And I thought that exactly what you're saying 
the colors uh, told so much of the story so frequently down to a scene in a morgue. The colors helped shape the narrative. It made it more academic. It made it much more scientific and devoid of richness in a way that enhanced the narrative. I'm so glad you brought that up or I would have been remiss to have forgotten it. I think what I love about the art for this is like certain artistic choices that they choose to make and how to give us information. On the fifth to last page, if we're reading digital, where it's those four panels of how iBoy, Rachel, Prodigy, and Dawkin all know how um, Teresa is lying in each of their own ways. And it was like this really interesting way to give us this information with these monochromatic backgrounds and fillings of color. It was spectacular. That's what I referred to as the Steranko style page. Yeah. And the way that it's framed with each of the characters who can tell that she's lying boxed in front of their own body in a color silhouette that matches the accents of their costume. It is really a well thought style page. Hey everybody, Nico here again, and this next segment is a look back at Juggernaut 1 through 5. Now, this Fabian Nicieza and Ron Garney-led series just came to a conclusion, and we've had a number of different people cover it over the course of its run, so it felt necessary to have everybody kind of take a look back, kind of evaluate that last issue with those first four in mind. In this next segment, Rod, Raven, and Robbie do just that, talking about how much they love D-Cell and the relationship Juggernaut has come to have with her. There's, of course, a call for more characters of color like D-Cell and plenty of credit given to Fabian and Ron for bringing her to life. We hope you guys enjoy. All right, everyone. It is our next segment of X's for Pod. I'm Rod. You can find me at Rod, the, on Twitter and Instagram. With us, we have Raven. Hey, everybody. I'm Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. Type that in. You can find me all over the net, especially on Twitter. And with us, we also have Robbie. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. Awesome. That's everyone for today. And today we are talking about the series Juggernaut. Issue 5, the last part of the series, just came out. And now we're mm-hmm. going to discuss that issue and our feelings on it. Fabian Nicias is the writer. And then Ron Gorney is the artist. And then Matt Milley is the color artist. And VC's Joe Sabino is the letterer. All right. Now, this Juggernaut solo series is a series that surprised everyone. No mm-hmm. one really knew why it was happening. <laughs> um, but it is a journey on how Kane Marco Xavier's brother gets his armor back after Ileana Rasputin took it away in Uncanny X-Men and it shows his basically redemption arc that he meets this young mutant named D-Cell and is trying to become a hero himself in the only way Kane can in very destructive ways. <laughs> so yeah that's basically what the story is, is a redemption arc for Kane the Juggernaut. Well I mean he was he was trying to go on the straight and narrow and just he wasn't even trying to be a hero at first he was just trying to be a regular guy with a regular job just kind of keeping his head below you know (laughs) off the radar basically (laughs) as usual in the marvel universe you know the universe came calling and he found more purpose in needing to protect this young mutant who is being targeted i wasn't expecting to necessarily need or like this title but oh my god when 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 they came out with it and and getting to read all of it it honestly made sense why this arc needed to happen and it opened up a lot of really good doors i definitely agree with that i definitely agree i like i said before in our green room that i am was never the biggest fan of 
Juggernaut. I've liked his aesthetic, but I've never needed to read a Juggernaut solo story. But <laughs> I did with this one because, you know, it's a, it was the new year and new X-Men, new mutants. So I was like, okay, I'll give him a chance. And like, I'm really glad I did because now I feel like this story made us care about Kane Marco. Made him see him as an actual person than just a destructive force that can't be stopped. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, he was like, mm, he was a henchman, usually. Like, yeah, he was a villain, but he was he was usually best as a henchman to either, like, Magneto or, you know, the Brotherhood. Or, you know, he's he always had to be paired off with somebody. He didn't seem like he had his own, his own mind or his own will. He just seemed like a giant rage monster who could not be stopped. So it was interesting to see him as an actual person and his thought process on what he wanted and to actually see him care about somebody else other than the job or himself and they really did that by bringing in decel the young mutant with the deceleration powers like he you don't just see them in action and he's like oh you're my teammate you know just we got to be careful and keep you safe it was really great but they had moments together where they're just like sitting at a diner talking and he's giving her sound adult advice what i know like <laughs> <laughs> they actually make Kane like coherent and a level of intelligence that we haven't feel like I feel like we haven't seen of him especially in a while mm -hmm. yeah and I really like this transition into a type of character like that because before <laughs> we would definitely you know see him just like you know bulldozing himself somewhere and I'm and we'll be like oh well fuck here's Juggernaut again <laughs> you know popping in like the Kool-Aid man <laughs> <laughs> honestly <laughs> and you know it's nice because it shows that that's not a hundred percent his character anymore i mean he essentially for like before uncanny x-men because uncanny x-men he was trying to help the x-men basically he's basically being kind of good there as well but before that he was just a villain that just like you said like the kool-aid man just popped up out of nowhere and started <laughs> trouble like in the iceman solo he just was there just because <laughs> and i forget what other place he showed up before then but he just he didn't really have a purpose he was like i'm juggernaut i hate you punch punch ram i'm like okay <laughs> yeah like we never really got a feeling for who kane marker was as a person and i like half the time it felt more like he was being um kind of pushed by the crystal um of sidorax to like you know be this unstoppable force and finally we actually get to see him as like a thinking human being like we see that he is yeah he is determined he you know goes and like searches out the crystal and goes and tries to find the bands and like he's very determined because he thought the power was what made him a person uh -huh. and in this title not only does he get to kind of heal from um, a lot of that kind of toxic thought process but he also gets to learn that the power is not the only thing that makes him a person and to see him actually have a young person and kind of on his side going dude i mean you're yeah your power makes you cool but you know just you as a person have to be more you have to actually think about what you're doing and you know it's it's all about how the world perceives you so what 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 are the optics you're putting forward what are you doing to be better and like are you letting the world know about that and so it was it was great to see him grow beyond being just a big scary unstoppable thing and actually become the person that we needed to see exactly i 100 agree with that raven it was very well said i love that i 
Fabian, the writer, did I? I think he really connected with Juggernaut. I don't know if Juggernaut um, is his one of his favorite characters or not, but it definitely seems like it. You know, he definitely put the work in to make us care about him and show that he has his own thought process and he's not just like a carbon copy villain. Yeah. And the way they kind of even made him in the future be a mentor, like we know at the end of this issue that he's gonna, you know, start his own little like superhero group like saving other power people maybe even being a mentor to younger people in the future Mm -hmm. and i'm glad that we get a hint of that with d cell and like you said she helps him see that in himself Mm -hmm. and for someone like juggernaut to get that is really great because he's also not the typical look you get for heroes either it's like yes he's big and he's big and powerful but he's also just not like like he's big big you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) he's he's not just like you know like muscly six-pack and like he does probably have that but he's not just like the regular stereotypical superhero guy looking like no he's he's massive like he's only slightly shorter than hulk so he's a big dude he's a Mm -hmm. really big dude and i like that we have more big hero type people in the universe showing that juggernaut is not just his armor but he's also like you know a person (laughs) that's always good (laughs) for like superhero type people like they're more than just punching and everything yeah but yeah no it, it it was great to see him like actually have to take that journey like it shows one of my few complaints with the flashbacks and flash forwards but the flashback to when he's in limbo and like he drags his armor through limbo and like you see him lose so much weight and so Mm -hmm. much uh uh, muscle and everything to the to you know like the last point where he finally finds the crossroads and, and sacrifices his helmet like he didn't just stay big the entire time like they showed him him getting broken down as human being and then having to rebuild himself like that was impressive to watch that journey that actually made him i think more human um and and much more of a connectable character in my eyes when they did that so i was i was impressed with the journey that they took him on oh definitely definitely i one thing i would like to say speaking of um kane's journey is one thing we i feel like we should really we touched on it a little bit but we should touch on it more is his connection to Krakoa why he has a connection with Krakoa because he's you know been on the Brotherhood of Mutants so is when he was first introduced it was speculation like maybe he's a mutant maybe he's not and we obviously know now he's not a mutant that's been known for a while but in the beginning of issue 5 when he's astro projecting talking to Xavier and walking around Krakoa I love that in this non-Krakoan book we get a look of Krakoa and like different mutants like a like a lizard hybrid mutant Mm -hmm. pixie in the background and like a telepathic mutants working together so we can see D-Cell, like a figure mm-hmm. of D-Cell, like who are these mutants? That is, I'm glad we get to see all these different types of mutants and I hope we see more of them. Like, <laughs> yeah. like there's an entire society that you can see being built and it's kind of amazing and wonderful. But yeah, like it, it's, I think we talked about this in the green room. Like I, I get what Krakoa is supposed to be an allegory for, but every time I hear the, well, it's for mutants only coming out of a, a cis white person's face i just ugh, i cringe yeah. <laughs> i just absolutely cringe i'm like uh-huh. this feels this almost feels like a yeah just it don't it don't quite set right and i kind of like the fact that that juggernaut has pushed us to think about these things because 
we've been thinking of it from kind of like just the mutant perspective through like, you know, X-Force and Hellions and Marauders and just from that standpoint. But now we're looking at the standpoint of, well, there are more and more mutants that are on Krakoa. There are less and less mutants that are in the world, at, you know, just running around and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, as they become more scarce, I guess you could say, like, what happens to the people who have powers but aren't considered mutants? And, you know, if they get targeted by, say, the government or, you know, other nefarious groups, like, where's their safe place? Where, what, are they just going to fend for themselves? Like, what happens now? And Kane Marco is a great example of this. Like, yeah, he technically doesn't have mutant powers, so Krakoa is not an option for him, but he's still a super-powered being. So how does he navigate the world, and how is the world going to receive him, seeing as he was a villain for a really long time, and now he seems to be more or less reformed and maybe slightly more anti-hero, or, you know, trying to lean towards hero. Which, I mean, yeah, that that could have a lot of ramifications, especially with the new group that he sort of formed. I, yeah, exactly, definitely. Like, spoilers ahead, people that haven't read Juggernaut, which, if you haven't read it, why are you listening? Um, <laughs> but at the end of at the end of this fifth issue, you know, Juggernaut makes Zola, the, the science Nazi, makes him bring back Quicksand mm-hmm. with the Primus which is awesome and Kane is like you know I'm I want to I know how it feels to be you know taken advantage of and abused for mm-hmm. people that have powers so I want to start this new group and rescuing them and mm-hmm. you know taking care of each other which like you said I'm glad they it's just like Krakoa but without mutants and there are so many people that aren't in like you know the Avengers are the champions or what what have you that are alone that don't mm-hmm. have anyone to protect them that don't really care about them and retrospect so mm-hmm. we need kind of like the, the the outsiders kind of so like taking like from dc like having a group of the outsiders but from marvel i think we're heading towards that yeah yeah i think you're gonna get like small pockets of of i guess we're gonna call them metahumans yeah. Um, but yeah small pockets of kind of like metahumans who are just gonna need to band together because we're seeing more and more government interference when kane breaks into the dungeon mm-hmm. they used a modern modified mutant powers from swarm and toad so like they you could see the government is taking powers from like mm, villainous mutants that they've captured Uh and modifying it and using them as weapons so we're already seeing government abuse (laughs) of of mutant superpowers oh yeah i mean that's we i feel like we knew this was gonna happen Oh, yeah. When Krakoa became its own nation, other mm-hmm. governments are yeah. like, oh, well, now we have like a superpowered country of power people. We need to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering where how that's going to go because you you know, you know that the government is going to start to to do some serious overstep. I mean, between Cradle getting kind of handsy with young heroes and whatnot mm-hmm. and trying to regulate them. And now you've got these people running the dungeon which you know is government owned and operated like yeah i i have a feeling we're going to see a lot of overstep as it were or government organizations deciding to (laughs) take and abuse mutant dna as they see fit 
which mm-hmm. that's just that's that's not gonna work out well and yeah no. they're making no. it incredibly hard for <laughs> like any type of like superhero being like i feel like if i was like someone with powers my anxiety would go from like zero to a hundred oh, yeah. like like oh am i gonna walk outside and get dissected today we'll see mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah definitely i feel like this brings the point where i think out of the blue we're gonna need shield to come back like shield had its problems mm-hmm. but they kept a lot of that like they still targeted power people but they worked with them a little bit more and they kind of kept all the other government sanctions in check because they were like oh yeah. well you know we deal with this so y'all back off and they were like oh fine okay so <laughs> yeah and they also did have like liaison they did have dazzler this comic arc really helped to kind of bring forward some of the possible problems that we're going to see coming up um in the marvel universe itself but yeah i think they did really well on not being too expansive in mm-hmm. in their scope as to uh the characters because they honestly they could have tried to cram a cavalcade of characters in there oh, yeah. and they didn't they focused on d-cell and juggernaut and they actually had interpersonal relationships and like sometimes sometimes the flash forwards and the flashbacks were a little much this is my personal opinion if they had mm-hmm. taken all those flashbacks and just put them at the front of the book and mm-hmm. given us an issue of here's where we're starting and here's where we're moving towards and like made it a little bit more linear i think it would have worked better because mm-hmm. some of the jumps were a little bit jarring but yeah. i think overall it was great because we got this this centralized story small cast of characters which you could actually get to know and care about and then it showed you the overstep of certain organizations that we now have to worry about for the greater marvel universe so, oh definitely yeah i would say i would agree with you raven if i had a constructive criticism for this book i would say like my only one would be actually is uh the flashbacks they definitely they got they took they even though it's in the story and it's part of the story they kind of took you out of the story and not yeah they did like 100 you were in the mood of like following him and doing this and then it's like bam flashback it's like okay well hold on and i (laughs) like i said in the green room i think especially if it's only like a five issue arc Mm -hmm. like a whole whole series then you only need a flashback for maybe one issue and that's it because then it Mm -hmm. takes away from other progressive present moments that you really need in a book yeah like honestly if if they if you were to cut all the flashback scenes and literally just front load them into that first issue and just make it a linear progression it would have set the tone even better Mm -hmm. for for what we got into and it would have made the progression just so perfect (laughs) i am the queen of finding things wrong (laughs) (laughs) like i am i i tend to be very hard on on comic books but i think they did overall a pretty dang good job and that was one of the few issues that i had you know maybe they could have taken uh analogs of technology into account a bit more or Mm -hmm. you know or at least talk to a couple of kids to see how they actually (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that's a problem with any any comic book like science terminology because if you read a book that's like made what like 20 years ago it's gonna be dated true you know so i feel like that's the problem with anything if you try to incorporate you know right now saying you can talk to a teenager they exist (laughs) you can you definitely can but who instead of going hey fellow kids (laughs) it really was talk to a teenager though i don't (laughs) my sister's a teenager i don't even want to talk to her so right (laughs) (laughs) like no but overall i mean those those very small 
issues that I had, mm-hmm. those were literally the only ones. Overall, I enjoyed this book far more than I thought I would. Oh, and yeah. it really opened up some some great areas and some great questions that needed to be asked overall in, in the Marvel Universe. Oh, definitely. I would yeah. say, segueing a little bit, I want to ask Robbie, how do you, mm-hmm. I want to go down the line, but first I want to ask Robbie, how do you feel about D-Cell? We got a new, mm-hmm. you know, Black woman mutant. I'm, ass- I'm, I'm, I'm assuming she's Black. I mean, she's drawn as a Black woman. I don't know if she's yeah, just I Black. She might so be too. Puerto Rican. Maybe she's Puerto Rican. A woman of color. Because yeah. <laughs> well, her last name is, I believe, Martinez, isn't it? Oh, Martinez. Okay, well, maybe yeah. she is. Maybe she's Latinx. Yeah. So. Uh, I really love her a lot because I know when we were talking about Power Pack last time, <laughs> how we didn't see much with like, you know, social media type of stuff, but with her, with like the live streaming things, that's a really like accurate depiction of mm-hmm. like younger people in our generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like to a T. Like, I mean, yeah, not everyone live streams, but quite a few people people do <laughs> yeah i like her i do like her ability it's definitely a different type of power set than most mutants one thing i thought was a little funny it's when she's like jumping out of like a helicopter it was cute how it was like written in a very like more older old school type of way where she was like explaining her powers out loud <laughs> as she yeah. was falling and I, I was looking i'm like wow we don't really see that much anymore <laughs> it's very, it's- it was very Chris Claremont. <laughs> it really was. Like, like, oh, I am falling down. Hopefully my powers <laughs> do this as I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah. I had to giggle at that. Yeah, that it was, was very really cute. Funny. I really love that they incorporated the live streaming thing, even if some of the language wasn't as um, <laughs> as top notch as some hey, teenagers. cool kid. It was very hey cool kids, but I, <laughs> I, you know what? Some some kids are corny like that, so I appreciated it. Yeah, and I even liked that um, she asked about the live stream before she went on Krakoa. Right? Like, oh yeah, wait, that I probably can't do up. that. Because <laughs> I mean, that's honestly a really good question. Mm-hmm. It is. I knew she was going to ask it. I knew Xavier was going to. Well, he didn't even say anything, but he was just staring know, at she, her. She might set up social media for Krakoa. Hey, she, I'm sure she could talk. You know, Sage into that. Right. Give forward a couple of projects. If we see D Cell again, I hope that's what it's for. Oh like, my God, yes. <laughs> so, Raven, what do you? You already kind of said it, but what do you feel like? What are your opinions on D Cell? I I actually like her, and I understood like why she was so hesitant to label herself as a mutant. Like she was terrified of of the ramifications of being a mutant. She was so worried about like you know her. <laughs> I don't. Oh God, I'm trying so hard not to use a spoiler. Well, like she was afraid of her past coming back to bite her in the ass and like mm-hmm. you know having to admit what happened it wasn't her fault but it was her fault but it wasn't her fault yeah. so yeah, yeah like there's so much she's having to process internally and and her like coming to terms with being a mutant it, it was great because yeah you probably wouldn't necessarily just like oh yeah no I'm a, to- I'm a total mutant I'm a mutant I'm a mutant no there might be some, some pushback mentally when you're like oh my god I'm I'm a mutant and this means my powers could get people in trouble.
trouble or put people in danger and like having to come to terms with that is really really difficult so Uh, it was great to see that she actually has personality and that she has internal struggle and you know that she had to come to terms with some things so it was I like her I really do she's an interesting character and I think there's a lot that can be done with her um even on Krakoa it'd be interesting to see her like set up social media or you know um you know kind of interact with some of the younger kids and like hey let's figure out how we can make our own thing so yeah I I, I really enjoyed her and I thought she was I thought she was well done I have to agree I I I liked her throughout this whole series I was hoping I was like praying to the gods that (laughs) um she was gonna be confirmed as a mutant i was like please just don't make her not a mutant after hinting this like don't that will put a really bad taste in my mouth and Mm -hmm. i'm glad that you know we find out she's a mutant i felt so bad when you know we had that sad moment of her past come up and it did make like grow her as a character but i was like man this is explains everything on why she doesn't want to be doesn't want to be a mutant because then she has to Mm -hmm. face the fact that it was like technically her fault you know even though it wasn't but it was and The fact that Kane like mentors her and like makes her makes yes. it seem like she makes her feel okay to be a mute mm-hmm. and and like gets her to Krakoa and it's just such a, a beautiful like like uh, after school special type of story. With mm-hmm. We don't get that a lot right now with mutants because they're going through a lot. They just had X of Swords, you know. They're having Reign of X right now. It was mm-hmm. nice to be like this cute little mutant story with like a tragic backstory, but like they're coming together, becoming a family and now she found a new family like <laughs> that's really special and i hope i just got an idea i hope that if whenever they do make an x-court book because we know they're making one since Desil exists and she's a social media guru i hope that she makes an appearance trying to buff up x-court social media like that would be yo <laughs> that would be really that would be like a really fucking cool addition mm-hmm. like yeah. it, it it writes it's, it's right there she doesn't have to be like part of the main team or whatever because that looks I already established fine but she can guest star or something like <laughs> you know and that could work because um monet and angel that you know they got money they could mm-hmm. they could easily fund uh something yeah and they're and they're not they're not the best with people so <laughs> having, having especially with young people like monet monet has no patience and <laughs> archangel is very like self-conscious and angry so um well so, his powers is a pigeon so i mean he has a reason to be angry <laughs> they both do they both have very valid reasons <laughs> but d would be like a good little buffer for that i think so. she'd be a great little sidekick or, or a little um almost like a side character that you could have show up she doesn't have to necessarily have her own book right now yeah not right now yeah i think i think she's one of those background characters that you can grow and develop over time mm-hmm. and and make her very relevant and wonderful um i would also love to see her paired with other mutants you know how they're doing like fastball specials now for like teleportation and you know all this other stuff i'd love to see how she could get paired with other mutants in in small teams to see how that could work out to even more advantageous i wonder if she could accelerate human powers because you know she can decelerate stuff but wonder if she can make it reverse and accelerate Hmm. so it would also be interesting to see her on sword yeah i was just thinking that like she could really help out or be like a good backup type character like fabian like falls ill or something is fabian right the one that accelerates powers 
yeah. uh, Fabian Cortez, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she could be the backup because there's no backup for him yet. So <laughs> he could be, be interesting to see her as. A... <laughs> It'd be interesting to see their personalities clash. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> she would make fun of him oh, so yeah. much. She would clown the fuck out of that man. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like she has like more of a power than he does because I don't think his power other than accelerating human like does he have anything that doesn't just like def- for defense for himself can he do anything besides his accelerate other people's uh, power I-, I don't personally know too much about his power set Same, so. yeah no even i'm I, even i'm drawing a blank well i'm gonna just say no until someone <laughs> until someone ats us on twitter and is like you're wrong and here's why and that is fine <laughs> tell us educate us yes, please let us know <laughs> being educated on him but yeah no that'd be that'd be great to see their their personalities kind of play off of each other but also maybe their powers play off of each other i think that'd be interesting so yeah there's plenty of places where she can go and continue to be mentored and i think it's great though that she has this connection with juggernaut because that you know may bring her back to the regular world or maybe she's like sending him text messages or whatever and still keeping in touch with him because mm-hmm. i think I he so. needs somebody to help kind of keep him grounded and you know kind of on that path so So it's not going to be his brother so lord no (laughs) i'm like i get what's what's the use of family i guess you know seriously (laughs) but yeah i uh... I think I think they did really well with this book, All Things Given. Mm-hmm. Speaking of family, I'm glad they touched base on Juggernaut and Black Tom having mm. the connection that they have because, you know, they're both on Brotherhood and all that. I'm glad they're like, hey, you know, we're friends and let's check up on each other. I'm mm-hmm. glad they, that was he, really sweet. Yeah, he yeah. has connections with mutants other than his jerk of a brother, and I'm glad we got to see that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <But sighs> I would say, so Raven, what is your overall, like, last, like, thoughts on Juggernaut as the series i think it was i think it was well done you know i've already given my critiques on what i didn't like about it but i think it was well done and overall i was i was impressed i i went in expecting like a c-level book Mm -hmm. and i was pleasantly surprised like a good b plus a minus so yeah yeah, i like overall i'm i like what they did with this book i think it opened up some really good questions that needed to be asked and really gave me a look at kane mark the man and not just Kane Marco the monster. Mm, very well put. I love that. What about you, Robbie? I absolutely enjoyed it. I will say for people who have yet to really pick it up, don't make the mistake that I did and let it sit there for a while and collect dust, <laughs> you know, quite a few months. But uh, definitely give it a chance. And I really do like to see that, you know, writers going out of their way to give mm-hmm. us more racially diverse mutants mm-hmm. and for them to kind of give them like a little ending in a miniseries that could set them up to have potential in future books. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I do hope that she is Afro-Latino because yeah, we don't really be. have any. I don't we don't have many if we do have any. Uh, Cecilia Reyes. Oh, Sunspot. Yeah. Sunspot, yes. Spun Sunspot. But yes, more Afro-Latinos, more diversity in the mutant community. A, mu- a, a community that's supposed to be about diversity. <laughs> I would love more diversity on it. Same. But I would have to, I agree with Raven and Robbie that I would give it like a B plus, A minus. It like that one, had one negative, but overall everything else was fantastic. I basically probably like everybody else. I, when it first got announced that the solo Juggernaut series 
was happening, I was like, why? <laughs> um, are we just going to see him be mad that he's not Krakoa and destroy stuff again? Cool. Let's. I'll, 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 I'll see where this goes, you know? And Fabian, the writer, and Ron, the artist, definitely surprised us and surprised me especially. They worked well together. I love when you see a writer and artist really like work well and show the characters in a good light because you can tell that they talked with each other the way the book was presented and mm-hmm. i'm excited to see where juggernaut goes from this i'm glad i was wondering if this was just going to be like a one and done for juggernaut and at the end he's gonna be like well i'm happy with my life la 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 it's like no he has a mission now and yeah. I'm glad that he's not just going to be, hopefully not, just sitting on the back burner. You know, mm-hmm. he's actually doing things in the Marvel Universe, which is nice. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I agree. And not with Dr. Zola. And not with Dr. Zola. Oh my no. god, that little bit at the end, <laughs> that shit took me out. And they're how do they word it let me see a new beginning except not with the nazi scientists <laughs> yes <laughs> like me and raven discussed in the green room nazis cannot be reformed i'm sorry there's yeah. no going back <laughs> i really like that clarification at the end that they gave yes mm-hmm. thank you thank you marvel for that <laughs> i'm glad they agree i mean I'm, i knew they agreed but still <laughs> Yay. everybody nico here and this next segment was inspired by the last conversation i couldn't help but notice the discussion about how krakoa and mutants aren't mutually linked together you can choose to be a non-krakoan mutant so what does that mean for the characters that are not traditionally x-men characters i called together maddie and nathan and we had a little talk about characters that don't frequently appear in x books or i've yet to join the mutant nation of krakoa i think some of the characters we came up with were pretty on the nose and pretty unsurprising like molly and Justice and Firestar from Runaways and New Warriors respectively but there were some deep cuts in here and it was a really great and it was a really great conversation we hope you enjoy Hey guys, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. And with me today, we have Nathan. Hey guys, you can find me online at Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. Hey everybody, and this is Nico, and you guys can find me online at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N on both Twitter and Instagram, and probably a number of other places. I should just change my name at this point, but that's not what we're here to discuss. What we're here to discuss today is a state of x special edition because they're all special editions but here's what happened i had the pleasure of editing the zen coast rooms discussion on juggernaut one through five and it raised some really interesting questions for me some questions i probably hadn't thought about in a really long time i've been so overwhelmed with the mighty world of krakoa that i haven't considered the mute world outside of the krakoan border and for that reason i had to call together a a great meeting of the minds to talk about some of the mutants that maybe aren't so frequently bound by the pages of X-Men. Now, that might mean that they made a guest appearance in a non-X-Men title for a stint as a member. I'm not talking about, you know, the time that Sue Storm came came and hung out in an X-Men annual with Storm. That didn't make her an X-Man, okay? But for the record, Sue Storm, the X-Man, would be the greatest book of all time, just for the record, right? Oh, my God, yeah. Self-hating Where's X-Man. Where's that story? <laughs> so, I'm talking about when Logan would join the new Avengers 
creatures for a long period of time. That would count as well, right? Now, of course, there's also a plethora of mutants that have never, ever touched the letter X. I mean, like, I would assume that they've touched it at some point. Like, most mutants, and I mean that genuinely, like, most mutants have met the X-Men, whether or not they've ever actually formally joined the team. There's always that fan that's like, oh, but I need them to meet. And so it ultimately winds up happening. But all of this long introduction to say, guys, let's talk about some mutants that don't appear in the pages of X-Men. Maddie, I know that you've come to the table kind of like the most recently, but I know you still have a ton in mind. I do. I do. Well, first off, I would start with the character that I was first introduced to who was a non-X-Men mutant. And I feel like of all of the characters we might discuss today, in my personal opinion, she is the furthest removed from having touched the X, and that's Molly Hayes of Runaways. Ooh. I definitely agree. I mean, the X-Men and the Runaways have had such an inconsistent relationship. While, yes, Molly has had several one-offs or two-parters in which she interacted with the X-Men, outside of things like the free comic book day Astonishing X-Men Runaways crossover, there really isn't that same level of of interplay with Molly. Now, you say that like Molly was your first non-X mutant, so you probably read Runaways while you were wow, like probably in middle school. You might have were you like Molly's age when you read Runaways? Because I, I, like I, I was I was a little bit older. I was I was properly the age of like I was somewhere between Molly and the age of like the proper teen cast of Runaways at the time. I and in my heart of hearts I've always been Nico. Not you Nico, but Nico Nico. Oh, no, I get it because in my heart of hearts I've always been Nico, that Nico and this Nico. So I totally understand that. <laughs> but uh yeah, so I, I would I would definitely say that Molly was my first introduction to a non X-Men mutant. But if I had to if I had to pick the largest assemblage I know of X gene possessing non X-Men, it would definitely be the former great lakes x-men uh the great lakes avengers oh man you are you're pressing all my happy buttons now i hear you making your ooze over there nathan (laughs) so i gotta know do you have a relationship with the runaways molly in particular and how do you feel about the great lakes super squad and their many you know many incarnations and subsequent (laughs) appearances uh definitely with the runaways i've only really gotten into the, the last series that they had which was phenomenal i need to go back it's made me want to go back and read all the original are you saying you've never read the bkv runs no i have not oh my i literally can't imagine a book that is more like i'm not saying that you're gonna go out and change your username to runaways aoa that's runaways (laughs) aoa like i'm imagining a secondary account that's like age of runaway and like i that's shocking that is definitely a book for you that first 18 and then that second 30 with joss whedon plus the young avengers tie-ins in the two different volumes ah for sure for sure for sure for sure oh my god if both you and maddie are suggesting it like because i know nico you didn't steer me wrong with ecstatic so i know i have to pick it up now how to do it brian k bond's run on runaways is is something really special i think you're really gonna enjoy it (sighs) and it's also from that same suit Tsunami era. For those of you who aren't familiar with what gave us the Runaways, that there was this daring attempt at creating a Marvel book that used a mutant in a non-mute way. There was this drive at Marvel to get youngins to read books because somehow comics had become exclusionarily for older folks who could afford them, right? And that, you know, they've only got 
gotten more expensive ever since, but mm-hmm. at least there's more younger reading initiatives and online initiatives. And anyway, back to this story, there was an imprinted marble known as Tsunami. And Tsunami was a joint venture from a number of the different editorial departments to try and create a line of books that would sell well to a younger audience that saw the inclusion of Sentinel, Runaways, Mystique, and more. And this line was unfortunately very short-lived. And those books all sort of bounced back to Marvel proper. And we saw a lot more of those writers in the near future. We saw a lot more Brian K. Vaughn, a lot more Sean McKeever. And, you know, it's a lot of really great material from that era. And it's really great to hear, Maddie, that it really did what it was meant to do. It brought a new reader to comics and gave them characters that stuck with them for years. Oh, for sure. For sure. I I have not stopped thinking about that cast in in well over a decade. If I could also posit, you know, because I know today we're discussing uh, non-Krakoan mutants, right? The the mutants that have not yet joined the assemblage that we see before us in the House and Powers through Reign of X era. But if I could talk about a mutant spotlight in a non-mutant book, I want to call out Prodigy and Kieran Gillen's Young Avengers. Oh, that was that was the first time that I had seen Prodigy since the pages of New X-Men Academy X. And to see a mutant get a spotlight in an Avengers title was not unfamiliar to me because I feel like there are a number of instances over the years in the Avengers proper team that we have seen a cross-section between mutants and Avengers. Well, on that exact topic, I've kind of assembled a, a, a list of some Avengers that are also somewhat X-Men-Z that are also somewhat Avengers-Z, right? <laughs> now, this is just a mutants kind of meets Avengers list. We have Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who of course joined the Avengers way early on in their tenure back in Avengers number 16. We would go on to see the ever-fun, love-and-blue furry beast before he sucked to join the Avengers <laughs> in Avengers 137. Now, Namor would go on to join the Avengers in 262, and I think Namor, you know, whether or not you accept Namor as a an Avenger or you accept him as a mutant like i i know that people are pretty shitty about all of it but you know namor at least has had those designations in the comics at one point or another right now also pretty of note are two big name x-men that people kind of forget have been avengers wolverine has been an avenger in a number of different titles but first donned the mantle in new avengers number six and hey you know what's worth mentioning storm was an avenger in the pages of brian bendis's volume four avengers number 19 so it is of note right now i would also like to point out that squirrel girl been an avenger as well not just the nanny to the avengers but she has also been an avenger in the pages of west coast avengers who if i may my precious quentin who yes an x-man and yes very krakoan also did an amazing era in the west coast avengers very recently that was a pretty terrific book that i enjoyed quite a bit so I'd love to mention that. Now, I've left two pretty significant Avengers out, and that's because these two Avengers belong to a supergroup that I am familiar with, but I would be doing a disservice if I didn't pass the baton uh, to someone else to talk a little bit about this group. Now, Maddie, I know you're familiar with the new mutants and how they became X-Force, but did you know that the Hellions were a farm team for a different adult title? The Hellions, like uh, the original Hellions or the Hellions of the Reload? 
Oh, Hellions! Oh, original, original Hellions, a purple, purple burgundy, purple. red jumpsuit. M- Empath still wearing that same outfit uh, thirty years later. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I I am not sure who they were a farm team for, but I do know because I read their initial appearance in some coverage that we did a few months back. Actually, who were they a farm team for? Nathan, take it away. All right. So in the early '90s, right, the New Warriors came out. So the New Warriors was an ex- insane team you had firestar who originally was a hellion so she had that firestar limited series that four issues where everybody only seems to remember that emma frost killed a horse that you know that's besides the point on that um and then you had like of all of the dastardly things she did at that point in her career (laughs) and everybody's like killed a horse that's the breaking point what no adjust your settings yeah i'm like okay that was 30 years ago now um so then you had marvel boy at the time and he's become justice since he was a split from Vance Astro of the Guardians of the Galaxy. So the timeline diverged when Marvel Boy developed his mutant powers. You had Namorita, who is a clone of Namora, who's a mutant herself. And then you had several non-mutant members like Nova, Night Thrasher. Oh, I'm sorry. I left out Silhouette, who is also a mutant. She's amazing. She has dark force powers. You had Speedball, who's not a mutant. You, they Even Alex Power joined the team of New Warriors later on. So, I mean, New Warriors was like decked to the walls with badass super powered characters and even had room for mutants so like there really is a historical context for mutants being all over the Marvel universe not just in the pages of X-Men now there's actually one that I can't help but mention and I don't know if everybody here is aware of this but does everybody know that Carnage has a girlfriend (gasps) oh no how did I forget about her Shriek which best name ever right and Shriek is actually a mutant Shriek Carnage's girlfriend who will appear in upcoming Venom the movie Venom goes very kick bad guy or whatever I don't know what it's called I didn't see the first Venom so I just assume he's also like kicking people and chopping at them I don't know I didn't I don't know what Venom does in the movies I I don't know no I don't I don't particularly know either (laughs) wait did nobody here see Venom no no No. Okay, so glad this isn't a spider cast. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Yikes, yikes. Now, so that's that's kind of my question, though, about this list. We just named a bunch of X-Men who have appeared in other titles with consistency. We named a bunch of mutants who have appeared outside of the X-Men with, you know, some regularity. How do you guys feel about these characters and their spread across the Marvel Universe? I've always loved seeing mutants outside of the X-Books. I, I know it. I know they're not mutants anymore, but it always defined Wanda and Quicksilver, uh, Wanda and Pietro, the fact that they wanted to have a life outside of Echo. Um, Firestar and Justice were the same way for the longest time. Silhouette, they never really gave her that depth. She always had other stuff to worry about besides the human-mutant relation. But it's always just so fascinating to see them try to live in the normal world when the X-Men can't seem to do it. Now, Maddie, I know you have been, you know, like footing around the rest... Footing, that's a thing people do. I know you've been footing around the rest of the Marvel Universe as you've been coming to kind of get more 
comfortable with playing in and out of monthly comics. How do you feel about the nature of mutants extending outside of just the pages of X-Men into this bigger picture of the Marvel Universe? You know, and I, I don't particularly understand what kind of interplay there is between titles over at Marvel or the big two or a reputable comics, you know, company in general. But I would imagine that with, with as we've listed, plus so many more, I feel that there is such a wealth of opportunity to expand on these mutant characters as a social commentary on the world as it pertains to the events of House and Powers to current. I feel like we should start to see, because the thing that I've always loved about Marvel that I can't credit DC for particularly, is Marvel took real world settings and gave you familiarity. You, If you were from the West Coast, you probably associated yourself with the West Coast Avengers. If you were from the Great Lakes area, you probably associated yourself with the Great Lakes Avengers. You know, the beautiful thing about Krakoa is that Krakoa is universal. Krakoa is the everyman entry point for the reader so to see the potentiality for more international heroes who are established in and of their own countries who are not willing to like for example ursa major of the winter guard is a mute and we'll probably never see him on krakoa because those nationalist roots run deep for my cuban brother and nico uh we have la bandera from cuba who i don't know has ever graced the pages of an x book and is probably plenty happy in her home country as well you know i hope that this shifts the scope of coverage to not only a more international cast of characters, but that what we see come out of the non-X books will be a reflection of the social state of things in the current X books, if that makes sense. It really does, and it even propels my thought a little bit further. And I know you said international, and I know I'm saying, oh yeah, this is totally piggybacking on what you said, but now I got to bring up Interstellar. Because one of the biggest topics in Marvel Comics right now is one Mr. Franklin Richards and whether or not he is still a mutant. Now, Franklin is the example of a mutant not on Krakoa, or so we thought. There seems to be this idea that characters can't be two places or be two things, and I'm not sure if that's explicitly reductive. Now, you know, I think there is some interesting potential to the idea of this story if it ultimately came out that Franklin was in fact a mutant, always was a mutant, always will be a mutant, 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 mutant. Like, I don't mind testing the idea if it does ultimately, in fact, lead to this big sort of dramatic irony thing, situational irony, where the reader understands how the outcome is going to go, but it's the people playing along that don't. Like, I could be okay with that. But I do sometimes worry that, like, the reason people don't realize Shriek is a mutant is because it's so weird to have a mutant in the Spider books. The reason Molly stands out as a mutant in Runaways is because it's so unique to have a mute in a non-X book. I feel like with Franklin, we really get a sense of the kind of drama that this can lead to because we've seen the fan reaction and it's visceral. How do you guys feel Franklin plays into this idea of mutants on and off Krakoa? I think that they set it up in a way now with Krakoa as the nation for mutants that to not have a mutant go to Krakoa or want to go to Krakoa, they almost have to have a reason for it. Um, I know it caused some interesting stories early on with the Fantastic Four X-Men crossover we just had. It just seems like Marvel set it 
it up in the way where they had to do something with it. I hate the fact that he's not a mutant because it really takes away from his whole character. It takes away from like power pack specialness with the FEM2. But um, yeah, that's where I am. I think that Franklin Richards is the quintessential example of a mutant out on Krakoa, as Nico has stated, uh, until the most recent retcon, the potentiality that he is not, in fact, a mutant. But I feel like this is becoming a little bit more common in recent years. Scarlet Witch is no longer a mutant. Squirrel Girl has been retconned to no longer be a mutant. Franklin Richards is just the next iteration in a line of delineation between what a mutant can and cannot be and i feel that there is or should be a blurring of that line i think that a mutant can exist off of krakoa with good reason as nathan said before and i think that there is room for mutants to appear in non-x titles because i feel like it if if we're to believe in reading the x books that now more than ever with mutant supremacy on the rise the man machine war is imminent mutant supremacy superseding the natural order of human supremacy is imminent why are we not seeing the trickle-down effect of that in other titles. And I feel like Franklin was the perfect anchor for being a mutant in the Fantastic Four, for being a mutant in the Marvel Cosmic, for being a mutant in, in a broad sense. And to have that removed is a little, a little gutting. And I think part of it has to do with perhaps that Franklin is the Marvel Universe child. Like, he is the child of the big two. And the idea that this child exists and is a mutant and is that binding agent, you know, the further we get into this story and it's not being reversed, certainly the more surprised I am. No lie. But also, I have to imagine with the nature of the rubber band status quo, right? And I bring up the rubber band status quo because the most popular version of a character will always seem to reemerge. Like, we can't seem to avoid that identity beast has transformed a million times and now he's still blue and furry he's been not blue and furry but he's still blue and furry i mean you know what kind of animal he is might change but that is the thing that's more popular that is the thing that will stay you know there's sort of those changes and alterations to characters so i think there is still a great potentiality for franklin to reemerge as a mutant down the line even if they decide to keep it for the sake of this run for some time it, it's just a matter of when the right writer gets their hands on franklin that i think we're going to see a return to his mutant roots nathan how do you feel about the probability of the flip back or do you think this is it do you think this is like a marvel edict i i feel i feel conflicted because i i with franklin and even uh wanda and pietro i i do think it's a marvel edict to get them out of the echo totally to make sure that they don't really stay in that and they're not bound by anything that happens with it i hate it because it just feels like a huge 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 corporate like hey let's keep this thing separate and this thing separate over here when there's such amazing stories to be told now scarlet witch and quicksilver from a marketing sense made a little sense because of the movie rights with the avengers and the x-men at the time but right now i'm not really seeing the real reason for franklin richard to have his mutant identity stripped especially when he was just so ecstatic to start embracing i really understand that 